my entire message to you this morning is a prequel for what's coming over the next few weeks. I just need to give you some context as, as I go where I, where I think the Lord is leading us to go. This man is Polycarp. He was born in the year 69, so he's born 40 years roughly after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Uh, he was a disciple of John the Apostle. So when John was in his 80s and 90s, Polycarp was in his 20s and 30s, and Polycarp traveled with the Apostle John. We don't, this isn't in the Bible. This is after the Bible was written. Historically, we know these facts about his life. Traveled with John the Apostle. He was his disciple. And then in his older age, he became the leader of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the seven churches that is in Revelation 3. Jesus uh, addresses the church of Smyrna. It is a city on the west coast of what is today Turkey, what they called Asia back in Bible days. He led the church in Smyrna, and in the year 156, when he was 86 years old, the governor of Smyrna, uh, the Roman governor of that city, decides he needs to prove a point. Christianity was illegal. Many Christians had already been martyred for their faith through lots of executions, in the way that is mentioned in the book of Acts and other places in the Bible, but, but also we know historically they were, they were killed in the gladiator arenas, they were executed, they were crucified, they were beheaded, they were burned at the stake, they were fed to lions and bears. This had happened thousands of times already by the year 156. So Polycarp and the other Christians of the Roman Empire days were well acquainted with what it was going to cost them to follow Jesus. Polycarp had led the church... He was the oldest pastor, I guess we'll say. They didn't use that word then, but the Roman governor appointed by Caesar decided he needed to prove a point. They're getting out of hand and this religion is spreading. And, and so he brings Polycarp into his throne room and that little altar there, it's a brazier where various places throughout the city in the Roman Empire, there would be a statue of Caesar or a plaque with his name and his titles, and, one, and two of the titles of Caesar in the Roman Empire was Lord and Savior. And you, any, any Roman citizen, any person, walking down the street, if you passed one of these statues or one of these altars, you had to stop. There was a fire on the altar all the time. You had to stop and pick a pinch of incense and throw it on the fire and say, Hail Caesar, Lord and Savior. And they prayed to him. They worshiped him as divine. That idea is nothing new at all in history. The Egyptians worshipped their Pharaoh as a god, and the Babylonians worshipped a king as god, the Mayas and the Aztecs did. I mean, it's nothing new at all that kings claimed to be divine. And Caesar in Rome did also. And like I said, two of his titles are Savior and Lord. But the Christians in the empire were known that they would just walk right on past the statue and they would not throw their incense. They would not pray to Caesar. They would not call him Savior and Lord. And that was one of the things that continually got them in trouble with the Roman government was that they wouldn't pray to Caesar. They weren't fomenting rebellion against him. They just wouldn't acknowledge him as divine. They wouldn't pray to him. They wouldn't burn their incense. So... In front of everyone in the court and all of the hierarchies in the city, the governor calls Polycarp in and says, put incense on the altar and say, hail Caesar, Lord and Savior. 86-year-old Polycarp says, no, I will not. And the governor says, come on, Polycarp, it's just a pinch. It's just incense. Just throw it on the altar. Do it. He said, 
No. He is not my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior, and I will not betray him. He says, all right, Polycarp, let's go down to the arena. So the next picture is an artist's imagining of an arena where they would have chariot races and gladiator games, but also in between the gladiator games and chariot races, they would release lions, tigers, bears. They would feed Christians to them. This is not an actual historical event here in this painting, but we've got a group of Christians waiting on the lions coming up out of the trap door in the floor, and we've also got some on crosses on the right and some burning on the crosses on the left. Probably not all of that happened at once, but it all did happen over time. So the next picture, Polycarp at the, at the arena. The governor takes Polycarp to the arena, and the governor sits in his throne at the arena in front of this mob of several thousand people, says, since you wouldn't put incense on the altar, he says, I command you to say down with the atheists. Because the Romans called the Christians atheists. Because the Christians wouldn't acknowledge Jupiter and Mars and Mercury and Venus and the other gods in the pantheon. So the Romans referred to the Christians as the atheists. We're not atheists, but according to their gods, yeah, we, we don't believe. So the governor says, I command you, in front of all these thousands of people, he says, I command you to say down with the atheists. And Polycarp looks and stares for a while, and then he puts his, points his finger, and he turns around in a full circle in the arena, and he says, yes, down with the atheists. And the governor says, do you understand that I have wild beasts ready to rip you limb from limb right now? Polycarp said, bring it on. Hundreds, thousands of people had already been put to death. It is more than highly likely, it's nearly a guaranteed fact, that Polycarp would have known many Christians who were put to death. The people in his youth, he knew some of the apostles. He would have known many people who were put to death for their Christianity. The people that he respected the most were the men and women who'd gone before him and given their lives for Jesus bring it on. I'm ready. And the governor begins to lose his temper and he says, I command you to reproach Christ, meaning reject Jesus, say something bad about Jesus. And he says, I will not. I'm going to burn you to death. We've got a pyre over here, a pile of wood with a cross on it, and I will nail you to it and I will light it on fire. And Polycarp in front of the whole mob says to the governor, you threaten me with fire that's going to kill me in a couple minutes. You know nothing of the eternal fire that you are destined for if you don't bow to Jesus instead of Caesar. So the governor orders him to be nailed to the post on the pile of wood and burned to death. The soldiers grab him, take him to the post, and they begin, they're going to nail his hands completely back around behind him to the post. And, and this 86-year-old man says, you don't need to nail me. I won't move. And they don't. Their commander has ordered them to nail him, but Polycarp has so much authority in his bearing. So they tied him to the post, and they lit it on fire, and the fire is raging. In the, and the story in our history, the Catholic Church preserved, says that the fire burned around Polycarp, but it wasn't burning him. Whether that was true or not, we don't know, but it doesn't matter. We know that um, either way, while the fire was burning, while he's uh, burning at the stake, they put a spear in his side, finished him off, and he died. There are three 
pieces to this story that I want to draw out from the testimony of Polycarp and his willingness to die for Jesus. There's several things I want to draw out of this. But before I get into that, I have to point something out to you. I want you to notice that in the Roman Empire, government and religion are one. You must worship the government. Caesar. Hello? You see that? The government enforces the religion and the religion is the government. You worship the government. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher, a Christian philosopher in Denmark in early 1800s, said that all that calls itself politics in the end will be unmasked as religion. What he's saying is there is no, actually, there is no such thing as politics. It's all religion. And you, you believe what you believe. And he's correct. And I hope to prove that to you as we go along here. But in the case of the Roman Empire, government and religion are one. You must worship the government, the head of the government, and the government enforces the religion at pain of death. And that's always true in dictatorships. You know, any dictatorship that you could learn about in history, either in the case of North Korea, there are statues of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il all over the country, and you must stop and bow and worship the idol. It's an idol that you have to bow down and worship these dead dictators on pain of going to concentration camp. All of the communist dictators, Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and, and others, um, in the case of communism, it's, it's atheism, which is a religion. It is a religious belief. They enforce, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot have a religion. In some cases, it's, a, it's an enforced religion like in the Catholic dictatorships of the Middle Ages, in the Incan times, in the Mayan times, ancient Egypt, you, and in ancient Rome, you had to worship the king. Who is the government? Government and religion are one. They always are. We have a, a, a grand exception in America for the last 200 plus years, but we are the extreme exception in world history that our government does not force its citizens to literally worship it. So the governor tells Polycarp, just offer the incense, just burn it, just a pinch. It's just incense, Polycarp, just do it. Just make a harmless compromise. It ain't hurting anybody. You're not hurting Jesus. You're not hurting any other Christians. You're not harming anybody. Just do it, and I'll let you go. And when that doesn't work, it's say down with the atheists. I want you to disassociate yourself from your other Christians. Disassociate yourself from the church. And when that doesn't work, then his rage is full on and you must say, I hate Jesus. You must say, I reject Jesus. But the Romans were not exclusive in their religion. We know this from history and even the Bible. We know that the Roman Empire allowed any religion that wanted to, to exist. They ruled people from northern Africa all the way almost across to India, all of Europe. Uh, they, or, they ruled a vast territory, and they had a lot of different cultures and people groups and nationalities and religions. And if they had clamped down and made everybody only worship Mars and Venus and Jupiter, they would have had rebellion all over their empire because people weren't allowed to practice their religion. So they weren't exclusive. 
In fact, the Roman Empire offered to the Christians to make Jesus a part of the pantheon. Sure, yeah, you can worship Jesus. We'll put his statue right here in the pantheon in Rome along with all the other gods. The reason the Christians got in trouble was not because they were Christians. Per se, it was because they claimed that Jesus was the only way. The Roman Empire let everybody worship whoever they wanted as long as you also do what we say. Hello. The Christians became outlaws because they refused to worship Jesus and. Everybody else just did it. Like, okay, yes, they're going to let us have our traditional religion, our home language, and our culture. We just got to play their game and offer their incense to Caesar and their gods. And, and they did it, but the Christians wouldn't. Because Caesar is not Lord and Savior. Only Jesus is. So they called them atheists. The Romans called the Christians atheists because they didn't believe what the culture and the government commanded that they believe. They weren't actually required to reject Jesus. Just don't tell us that we're wrong. Nobody's telling you, foolish Christians, that you can't have your Savior and your church and your songs and your prayers. We just also require that you participate in our worship as well. That's the only thing that ever got Christians in trouble. They weren't in trouble because they had church or because they read a book that they thought was holy. It was because they wouldn't play the Roman game. And what did the Romans worship? Government. Caesar's titles were Lord and Savior, and, they, and you had to acknowledge him as that. And again, that's not new to Rome. That's, that's every government demands loyalty. Every government demands allegiance. And it's not politics, it's religion. It is enforced with religious fervor. So the Roman attitude to the Christians was, you don't have to believe it, just don't challenge it. The governor tells Polycarp, come on Polycarp, it's just incense. Just do it. He didn't command that he believe that Mars and Venus were real. Gods and goddesses. At first, he didn't even demand that he reject Jesus. Just play the game, Polycarp. Do it. You stupid, stubborn, ignorant Christians that won't play the game. You don't have to believe it. Just go through the motions. Believe what you choose, but obey us. Believe what you want. Don't claim it's the only truth. So there's three things I want to draw out of Polycarp's story, the last day of his life. This, everything I've told you just happened all in one day. There's three, three points I want to draw out about Polycarp refusing to offer just a pinch of incense, just, just to do it, to save himself. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that you can't have Jesus and a little bit of sin. The Christians understood that you can't have Jesus and anything else. And Polycarp understood you can't have Jesus and a little bit of sin. You can't have Jesus and just the occasional peek at videos online that I shouldn't be looking at. You can't have Jesus and just a little bit of weed. You can't have Jesus and I'm just a little bit tipsy. 
It's not very often. You don't harden your heart by excusing little sins. Because there is no such thing, actually. There is no little sin. Jesus said lust is adultery. Because if you give in to lust, that's the baby adultery. And if you, when it grows up, you will be cheating on your spouse. Jesus said anger is murder. And we know that in the actual experience, it isn't. But his point is that if you give in to anger, you have planted the seed of murder. Because to murder, you have to get mad first. It's the first step. There's no such thing as a little sin. There's baby sins, but they're not little. They grow up and they destroy your life. Somebody a couple weeks ago told me that worry is the seed of atheism. And they're right. Worry is baby atheism. Like, If you don't trust God to take care of you, you might as well not have a God. If you continually give in to worry, it's, it becomes unbelief. There's really no such thing as a little sin, and, and the devil knows that. But he knows that you think there is. And he knows he's not going to get you to jump in bed with a coworker tonight, but you probably hide what you're looking at on the computer tonight. It didn't hurt anybody, just a little thing. Solomon, in his life story, is a tragic example of that. He probably had set up for the best success in all of world history, having King David as a dad, but he married women who worshipped other foreign gods and. His heart was all for God when he started. He kept marrying the more and more women. And to keep them happy, they all worship in their idol temples of their gods from their home countries. And, and I, you can just see it playing out. Well, honey, why don't you go to temple with me? So he goes to temple just to keep her happy. And then, well, you're not participating. You're just standing there with a scowl on your face. I want you to love my God too. And so he just goes through the motions and he doesn't believe it, but he does it to keep his wife happy. And eventually he's on his knees before every idol in the whole world. And his heart was drawn away from God. And it started with just little compromises. There's no such thing as little sin. You can't have Jesus and a little bit of sin. But actually that's a false comparison to the Polycarp story because the governor isn't trying to get him to do a public deed of sin. Like commit adultery or murder or whatever. The governor isn't trying to get Polycarp to do that. What the governor is tempting him with is to save his own life. You can't have Jesus and your own life. And Jesus said that from the beginning. And Polycarp knew it because he knew hundreds, perhaps, surely likely, he knew hundreds of people who had already died for their faith. And they knew it in a way we don't. You know that it happens in China and North Korea and maybe Africa and Muslim countries, but, but it's just a philosophical thing in, in Oregon. But it's about to not be. It's, I think it's immediately in front of us. Things are going to change drastically. You can't have Jesus and your own life. Jesus said it from the beginning in Luke 9. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, he didn't say if you say you hate me. If you're just scared to own me in front of your family and coworkers or classmates at school, if that scares you, I got a problem. James 4.4 says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Not whoever is a friend of the world, whoever even wants to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Well, wanting to be liked isn't a sin. 
God says it's one of the most dangerous things you can do. To want to be liked, because if you want to be liked, it changes what you will and won't say. And what you will and won't do in class and at work. It is very clear. You read the whole Bible all at once. It is very clear. Jesus says, you're going to be hated. You have to give up your life. It is a slick and dangerous temptation. But even this is really not what's going on between the governor and Polycarp. He isn't tempting him to do a deed of sin. And he isn't even... The governor could care less whether Polycarp lives or dies. The governor has a point to prove. He's just using execution as a threat, as a temptation to Polycarp to get him to do what he really wants, which is to obey. You will obey me. You're not doing what I want. And by his own admission, the, government, the governor says, it's a small thing. Just do it. Meaning... It's a small thing for the governor to expect Polycarp to do, but I'll kill you over it. The governor just wants control because it's religion, not politics. The governor doesn't care what Polycarp believes. He just cares that he publicly throw the incense on the altar, go through the motions, play the game, and I've won. I've made you do what I command you to do. He demands obedience and loyalty above all else. Polycarp's allegiance to Jesus is a threat to the governor's authority and control. And all of history, the entire last 2,000 years, prove that. It's every government, every dictatorship, they've hated the church. Even the Catholic Church, when it was in charge, hated those who were really born again with real faith because you can't challenge the status quo. You can't say something's wrong. You just must obey. The governor in this story gives away what he really believes. He says to Polycarp, it's just incense. Just do it. Save your life. He doesn't believe Caesar's divine. He says, it's just incense. Just do it. He doesn't believe in the prayer or the worship. The governor says it's just incense. So he doesn't even believe it himself. We have ample evidence. It's all over the place in history that no one in Rome believed in the gods by the time of Jesus in the New Testament. You go ancient. But by the time this stuff is happening, it was all just a show. There were temples all over Rome. Everybody goes and offers their incense and makes their offering because that's what the government demands. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? I don't believe anything. Remember? So the governor here doesn't even believe it himself. What he's actually demanding here is submission to the system that he represents. Not actually that Polycarp change his religion. You just have to do it because that's what we command. Just go along with the lie that we're all living. Don't rock the boat. Don't dare challenge the status quo. We're the ones in power and you will obey us. You will swear allegiance to us. You will not challenge what we say, even though we all know it's not true. That, my friends, is the last 2,000 years, the, the relationship between every 
every government in the church played out in one day with two men. And I believe that if Polycarp was tempted, this is what he was really tempted over. I don't think Polycarp was tempted. He's 86 years old. You don't change an old, old man's opinions anyway. But when he is the stalwart rock of faith that he is, when he's got all the church watching his witness, and when he knows Jesus and he knows so many people who've gone before him that have been beheaded or burned or crucified, he says, I don't think he was tempted. But if he was tempted, this is where he was tempted. He's like, this governor doesn't even believe this. And he doesn't expect me to believe it. He just expects me to do it. It's just a little incense. He said so himself. I could just throw it on the fire and get out of here. Jesus knows I don't believe it. If Polycarp was tempted, that's where I think he was tempted because that is the most satanic temptation. Jesus knows I don't believe it. He knows my heart. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not cursing Jesus. I'm not publicly sinning. What's it going to hurt? The guy wants me to go through the motions. I'll go through the motions. He doesn't even believe it himself. I'll just throw the pinch on the fire and get out of here. I don't mean it at all. It's all a charade anyway. But Polycarp knows that's worse than Judas because Judas owned his betrayal. And he'd have to explain his way. Come on. So my third point is, which is the real one, is that you can't have Jesus plus any lie. We cannot have Jesus plus any lie. Never participate in a lie. Never, 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 never go along with something that isn't true just to save your own skin. Even if what you're being asked to agree with or to do doesn't hurt anybody. If it's a lie, it's a lie. And there is no politics. It's either truth or it's lie. Any of this sound like America 2022 to you? Like the government and religion are one and we will enforce our religion on you and we don't care what you do in your building and we don't care about the songs you sing and the book you read, but in public, you must offer your incense. To our lies. Here are some of those lies that our government forces us to say. That a fetus is not a baby. There's sometimes legitimate reasons to kill them. That's not a political issue. It's not up for debate. It's a hundred percent lie. It's it's religion. It's either true or it's false. It's not a politics issue that we should wonder what's true. Another one is that that girl who changed her name and takes pills to grow a beard is now a boy. It's not true. It's a 100% lie. She's a girl. And we don't assent to it. We don't agree with it. We can't even be quiet about it. Don't offer your pinch of incense. You don't even just be quiet and walk off. It's a total lie. And it's not even about us proving truth. Like, this is somebody's soul who's bound for hell. And we're too cowardly to speak up because it might cost us something. No matter how much the lie is repeated, no matter how many people believe it, a lie is never, ever 
true. No matter what it will cost you to speak the truth, we must. Transgender cannot happen. It's not true. Another lie being spread is masks stop viruses and vaccines are safe. It's just repeated over and over and over again in all the media every day. And it's not true. Next one. Two men can be married. Doesn't exist. It does not exist. Two women or two men can be married. It's a lie. We cannot participate in the lie. Even just a pinch of incense. No. It's never true. It cannot happen. It does not exist. It's not a political issue to be discussed. It's a religion. And the government and religion are one. Which is why it's enforced by the government. And you will bow down at this altar or you will die. Marijuana is harmless. It's not a gateway drug to worse stuff. No, it's not the same as alcohol. It should not ever be legal. Masculinity is toxic and femininity is weakness. Another lie. Our marriage is beyond hope. We should just call it quits. Don't give that any room for half a second in your mind. Here's another one from a week and a half ago. Global warming is literally going to kill us all in nine years. That, that was stated a week and a half ago by some celebrity person. And you all laugh. But they believe it. It's not politics. It's religion. They really believe it. What is faith? Believing what you don't see. Like there's zero proof. Zero. It's not a, poli- it's not a political issue. It's religious faith. And they're going to destroy the world. Because of their religious faith. All whites are intrinsically racist. You don't give in to it. Sex before marriage is okay. In fact, it is impossible not to in today's world. The Bible is just old-fashioned. No. God's standard did not change. I know the world has changed and our kids are growing up in the sewer of all sewers. I mean, nothing like it in human history has ever existed. But it is possible to obey God. It is possible you can make it to your wedding as a virgin in obedience to God and in love for your spouse. And if it's too late for you, it is possible to be restored. It is possible that God can wash it all away and make you clean and new again. It is not okay. It's not everybody. It's not the way it is. Nothing in morality changed. Another lie is that a loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Especially not me. He likes me. Never, 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 ever offer your pinch of incense to any of these lies. Kierkegaard is correct. They are not political issues to debate. It's religion. The people who believe those lies take them as an article of religious faith. And the government enforces it because religion and government are one. And the Christians have always, for 2,000 years, said, no, we will not bow at that altar. We will not agree with that. We will not even be quiet. And for 2,000 years, we have had our skin in the game, except in America. For about the last 200 years, we are the exception of all exceptions I want to introduce you to a new guy, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a Russian. He was a soldier in World War II fighting against the Nazis, but he's 
a, a soldier in a communist army, Stalin, uh, Joseph Stalin is the dictator, and Solzhenitsyn hated communism, and he was an opponent of Stalin, and he wrote a letter that critique, criticized Stalin. He wrote a private letter to a friend, and the friend turned it into the secret police to get brownie points, and Solzhenitsyn was shipped off to the Gulag uh, in Siberia, where he spent, I think, three decades or maybe more um, in exile. This picture of him in his 20s as a soldier. This is a picture of him when he was in the Gulag. They shave him and shower him and dress him up in a suit and take pictures that they would publish to the rest of the world that everybody in the Gulag was healthy and happy and dressed well, but this is what he was really living in, living in the camp and bitter cold and disease and starvation. And, and then in 1974, he was permanently exiled from the Soviet Union, ended up in America. This is a picture of him in the 80s, in his old age, and uh, maybe even the 90s. I think he lived till 2007. He was exiled out of the Soviet Union and came to America where he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his writings. He was a prolific dissident writer, writing against communism, against the Soviet government. He was a Christian. Not very much of his writing is the gospel and Jesus. He was mostly concerned with resisting the lies of communism, socialism in his Soviet Union. I want to read to you some excerpts from his essay from 1974, published the day he was arrested. It was already set to be published, and it was distributed secretly in underground channels all over the Soviet Union the day he was arrested and shipped out to America. This essay is titled, Live Not by Lies. He said, we are approaching the brink. Already a universal spiritual demise is upon us. A physical destruction is about to flare up and engulf us and our children. While we continue to smile sheepishly and babble, what can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. He said that in 74. I say it's even more accurate today. We have so hopelessly surrendered our humanity for worthless handouts. We're ready to surrender all our principles, our soul, and all the labors of our ancestors and all the future of our descendants, anything to avoid disrupting our meager existence. We have lost our strength, our pride, our passion. We do not fear nuclear destruction or another world war as much as we fear to take a public stance for truth. Some will say, but really there is nothing to be done. Our mouths are gagged. No one listens to us. No one asks us. How can we make them listen to us? Well, the world demands of us only a submission to lies, a daily participation in deceit, and this suffices as our loyalty. Sounds like Polycarp. The governor's demand to Polycarp, just participate in the lie and we'll let you go. It's enough loyalty. Because the governor knows if Polycarp throws the incense, that is the same, it's just as good as if he says, I curse Jesus Christ. The governor would have stopped. If, if Polycarp had thrown the incense, the governor would have stopped because he'd won. Satan had already accomplished his plan. It's the same. Except that it's more diabolical because you don't think you did anything wrong. I just saved my own skin. Here is the simplest key for our liberation, a personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold not through me. And this is the easiest way for us and the most devastating for the lies. For when people renounce lies, lies simply cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only exist when attached to a person. And thus, overcoming our fear, let each man choose. Will he remain a servant of the lies in order to provide a living for his family and to rear children in the spirit of lies? 
Or has the time come for him to stand straight as an honest man, worthy of the respect of his children and contemporaries? There is no loophole left for anyone who seeks to be honest, to choose either truth or lies, spiritual independence or spiritual servility. And as for him who lacks the courage to defend even his own soul, let him say to himself plainly, I am a coward, I am a sheep, I seek only my own warmth and to eat my fill. Amen. Jesus Christ is truth. Satan is lie. No matter what else, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, no matter what your school teachers tell you or your professors or the world or the media or the movies or the internet, no matter if you think you're the only one in the room that sees through the charade, Jesus is truth and Satan is lie. Anything that is a lie is from hell. Anything that is true is from heaven. And how do we know? The Bible. No matter what else seems true, no matter how your emotions get played on, no matter how your heartstrings get pulled, no matter how much fear is threat is put on, no matter how harmless it seems, no matter what anyone else claims, no matter how bad you are tempted otherwise, and no matter what it costs you with other people, Jesus Christ is truth. Satan is lie. Satan doesn't require that you believe it. He's fine if you know it's all a lie. Just keep your mouth shut. Just assent to the lie. Don't challenge it. Don't rock the boat. Play the game. Go through the motions. And if you don't, I'll kill you. Just throws that in at the end to be nice. Jesus doesn't require that you do anything, just that you honestly believe it. Going through the motions with Jesus means nothing. You must actually believe it. I'm saying Satan doesn't care if you believe it or not. Just go through the motions. Just play the game. Jesus is like, I don't want any game players. I don't want anybody going through the motions. Just believe it. I don't care if you get anything done or if you accomplish anything at all. Just believe it with all your heart. Here it is, 1 John 5, 5. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's all it takes. Real, heartfelt belief. Jesus and Satan couldn't be more opposite. Satan's like, I don't care if you believe it, just throw your pinch. Just do it. It's nothing. It won't hurt anybody. And Jesus is like, you know what? I don't care what you don't get accomplished. I don't care what you don't understand. I don't know what you don't know how to do. Just believe it with all your heart. And live accordingly. So I told you this is a prequel, because right now Satan and our culture and our government are only pressing us to offer our pinch of incense, but very soon the gloves are going to come off, and you're going to see that Kierkegaard is correct, that there was going to be a satanic unity of government and business and religion that will force us to worship a false god and deny Christ, or we will die. Jesus warned us of that ahead of time. So my warning of you today is that I know that's not new news to you. I don't think we're going to have to get 666 tattooed on our forehead. It's going to be something a little more technological than that. But, but Jesus warned us ahead of time. So my warning of you today is not that 
666 is around the corner. My warning to you is that if you're used to making compromises and throwing your little incense, keeping your mouth shut at all these lies that the world tells when you're at work or in school, you don't speak up in class, you don't speak up with your family, if you're used to being scared when you have no skin in the game, you will lose when your skin is in the game. Because you're used to making excuses, you're used to justifying your cowardice to yourself. You're used to getting out of having to pay a cost. I don't know how long it is. I don't know if it's six months or 60 years away. But some of us, probably many of us, are going to see a big change in our lifetime. Jesus is truth. Satan is lie. Some of you have believed some of these lies. You need to know that they are lies. You need to be set free. You've believed that maybe you do have same-sex temptation. You've believed that maybe our marriage is hopeless. You've believed that maybe I am worthless and nobody loves me. You've believed that you've been afraid of the world ending and the lies of the world and the people of the world. And Jesus wants to set you free from those lies. You say yes to Jesus you will know the truth. Some of you, perhaps more of you, you know it's all charade. Everything the media tells us, everything the government tells us is just bald-faced lie. You know it. You know your professor is a fool. But you just throw your pinch of incense and leave the classroom. I don't want to cause a stir. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to lose my job. Because I'm resisting. Hello. You know it's a fraud. But you did it anyway. It's time to stand up. I'm not saying that we're where Polycarp was. Nobody's asking us to reproach Jesus. It's coming. I don't know how far away it is, but it's coming. But we're being set up to be used to complying to things we know are a total lie. But we do them anyway just to be able to get in the door of Bymart. Just to be able to send our kids to school. Just to keep our job and our retirement account. We just do it. You're being set up, folks. I'm not condemning any of you. I'm just saying you got to think this through. Swear allegiance to Jesus. No matter what the world says, no matter if you're the only one in the classroom, the only one in the break room, the only one at the family table, you do not give lies a pass. Amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the testimony of Polycarp, for his faithfulness to you and his testimony to us. Lord, that we would not be cowards, that we would not betray you by excusing ourselves of little things. Lord, I pray that there are those here who believe the lies, that you who are truth would break every stronghold, as we just sang. Break the strongholds, Lord, of the indoctrination and the propaganda and the cultural reinforcement in, in every song on Pandora and the radio and every movie that we've watched, and it's all just lies. Things that the world just takes for granted, they assume it's true. 
or they know it's not. They're not Lord and Savior. Our government is not our Lord and Savior. You are our Lord and Savior. And we will not bow to lies. We will not cower before threats. We realize this, these are not political issues to debate. It's, it's the spiritual war between light and dark. It's either true or it's a lie. There is nothing else. So Lord, I ask you to break off the lies. There are people here who believe that their life is worthless, that no one loves them, that no one would miss them if they died. It's a lie. It's from hell. God loves you. Jesus loves you enough to die for you. Believe it. So, but say Jesus Christ is true. Somebody here with same-sex temptation, and you just need to know Satan's lying to you. You are who God made you to be. You are a man. You are a woman. God didn't put temptation to sin in you. The Bible says God can't tempt anyone to do evil. It's a lie from hell. You're not broken. Just say Jesus is truth. Follow him. Believe his word. Obey him. He'll get you out of it. Whatever lie you're stuck in. For those, Lord, who know the lies, but, Lord, we choose to be quiet. We choose very carefully when we speak up. Or we, we're, we're the best of the ranters online, but in person we just go to the other room. Lord, give us courage of Polycarp. To not back down. To be bold even defiant to the lies. We pledge allegiance to you, Jesus. You are truth. Your word is eternally true. No matter what the world says or how many say it, your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen.